Shut up and sit down. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Man, we have a lot of things going on over here. Um, getting our plans finalized for ATA, um, getting everything uh, all set for that. So looks like we're going to be there again this year, all three days. And um, Frank and Ernie are back from their trip. Uh, they were in Missouri with us, as well as uh, then they moved on to Nebraska. Ernie killed a good 10-point in Nebraska. Real nice deer. And then Frank. Oh, Frank. Frank missed a giant um, on that trip. And, you know, in a story that only Frank can tell, but it's the biggest deer he's ever shot at in the woods. So um, that's going to be a good one. Uh, John's on the board with a doe, and that's his first from the saddle. So, um, you know, we've still been after it. Uh, my brother, who was on the podcast a while back from, uh, you know, talking about going out to South Dakota. Those go, the boys are back from South Dakota. He shot a nice little seven point and, uh, you know, a couple of his buddies shot some real nice deer out there. And uh, my brother Drew, he uh, he's more of a casual hunter. And uh, he shot his second buck of his life uh, with a rifle uh, his first sit of the season. So, um, you know, things are happening around here. Um, we're getting everything finalized for our latest Patreon giveaway. Got the sticks in today. Um, so if you haven't heard what, uh, what we're doing or you're new to the podcast, um, we have a Patreon page set up for, um, the listeners that want to support the show. Uh, listeners make a small donation each month that helps the cost of the, uh, podcast. So hosting the podcast and everything like that. And it also allows us to kind of go to these shows and kind of, um, you know, do some, some live podcasts and gear reviews and, and other things like that. Um, but as a way of saying thanks, you know, so we do quarterly giveaways. So we draw one of the Patreons and uh, we put together a package, um, you know, maybe from people that have been on the show or, um, you know, just gear that we believe in or things that we think that the listeners might be interested in. So this month, um, this this quarter's giveaway is a complete saddle hunting kit. So with the buzz around saddle hunting, um, you know, and we've been trying it out, and it's just not one of those things that you can just go anywhere and do. And if you're going to start out from square one, it's a pretty uh, can be a pretty expensive endeavor. Um, so we're giving away just about everything that you need to hunt from a saddle. So climbing system, uh, we're giving away a set of Muddy Pro sticks. Um, platform is uh, artisan outdoor fabrication platform, and that mounts to your top your top stick. Um, so you set your sticks, and when your sticks are set, you're ready to hunt. So that's what I've been using all year, and and I really like it. I, I don't see any need for anything else. Um, you know, that being said, I haven't tried the the Predator uh, from Tethered, but um, for right now. That's what I'm using. I really like it. So in that setup, we've got, you know, your climbing system, set of sticks, platform, and uh, Trophy Line is donating for us to give away to one of our Patreons, uh, one of their new Ambush Pro setups. So full saddle kit, climbing system, and a platform. So each listener, by donating to the show, basically is putting themselves in, in the mix to be drawn for um, that. And so we do... Similar things like that 
uh, four times a year. So that one's going to be going um, first week of January. And um, in addition to that, for our Patreons, we just opened up, like, so today I just started it, so there's nothing on there. But a Facebook page strictly for our Patreons, uh, so a Facebook group um, to stay in contact and a little bit more seamless way to uh, disseminate information back and forth. So we're going to be doing, um, it's going to be a lot easier to go live during the podcast and when we're at ATA and uh, Total Archery Challenge, stuff like that. So uh, to, to let the, those guys uh, follow along. So, you know, if you're interested in that, you can check that out. Patreon.com forward slash Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And our latest Patreons, just want to give a shout out. Thanks to John Johnson, Michigan guy, Kyle Gensler, Michigan guy, and then Brandon Stone out of North Carolina. So, you know, we've got a lot of different people across the whole United States. And then we've got one Patreon in Switzerland. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, it's going to be a bitch if he wins one of our giveaways because it's going to be really expensive to ship it over there. But uh, we'll figure something out. It'll be great. <laughs> and and so though, um, for everybody that's been asking about the shirts, um, I got the shirts. They're they're in, um, and I'm getting them in the mail just as soon as I hear from anybody saying, um, let me know what size and everything like that. Uh, I'll have them up on the website here pretty soon. I just don't have a tally of actually what I have versus you know what what's for sale, etc. Um, so I'm gonna get those on the website and uh, on our Facebook page just as soon as soon as possible but i do have them in stock so if you're interested in shirts or you you've been messaging me um those are available um but you know if you're just here for the podcast just here for the information um you know you can follow along with us on facebook instagram and then all of our episodes are uploaded to youtube as well as some other videos and things like that you know please hit the rating device so five stars on apple you know however it is on stitcher Podbean, all of that other stuff um please you know that helps us uh move up in the rankings and you know so other people can see us um, but if you don't want to do any any of that you like what we're doing you know just tell a friend that's all we ask and so that that we can reach some more people and um you know it helps us kind of keep this whole thing rolling so um really appreciate it great episode for you today i uh, really think you're gonna like it and here we go thanks for listening all right everybody we're back with another episode of the bowhunter chronicles podcast we've got today a special guest for you um a guy that i've been trying to get on this podcast for over a year now uh he gave me a date and a time and i said we can do it so um this guy you might know him from the public land challenge the two-year champion I'll go ahead and say it first, the Big Buck Serial Killer 2.0, the Carhartt Killer, Joe Rentmeester. How are you doing tonight, Joe? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Um, you got all kinds of nicknames, it sounds like. I like well, that. <laughs> well, I mean, going up and doing kind of like the things that you've kind of done over the past couple of years um, in the company that you've done it with, um, I mean, I think they fit, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, Works for me. Uh, you know, people have probably followed along with, um, you know, the hunting public and the public land challenge and all that sort of stuff. Um, but for guys that maybe haven't or, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and like how you, you started hunting and your, your hunting style, like from the get go. 
Sure. So the way I guess I started hunting is probably like most people. Somebody takes you out and uh, you, you get excited about it, you get addicted to it, and you want to do it more and more. And uh, the way it kind of started for me was my family had, um, or they still have a 200-acre piece of property. We have about 13 guys that hunt it. Um, bull hunting, there's not as many guys on it. But uh, about half of it's swamp, half of it's crop fields, and then there's a little bit of hardwoods. And uh, we, I get all these pictures of these different bucks, big bucks, um, right out of the gate, actually. There was one that was a booner. And uh, you'd, you'd get these pictures, and you just couldn't kill them. You knew they were there, and I would always bang my head up against the wall trying to figure out, well, how do I kill these stinking things? There's got to be a way to do it. So then I would turn to the, the traditional, well, back then it was like a VCR tape, watch the hunting, hunting videos of VCR tapes, um, read the magazine articles, and everything you try from all that wouldn't work, wouldn't work. And then uh, I started Google searching it and getting on forums, and someone said, hey, check out um, Dan and Fultz Mar- Marshbucks uh, videos, DVD. So I picked up that DVD, and instantly it made, it made sense. It all clicked. And uh, from there, it really took off. Um, now, what I did wrong for quite a while was I hunted that two-acre piece of property for, gosh, I think like four or five years. I just hunted the heck out of it. And Dan would always say things like, you need to um, hunt a spot and then leave it. And I wasn't looking at the picture. And maybe I need to explain on that a little bit better. You'd hunt a spot and uh, completely leave it alone. You wouldn't go in there, run trail cameras in there scout it just leave it alone completely you go in there hunt it if it's no good move on to the next spot and when when dan explained that in those tvs and i was younger i always I, I thought of it in too small of a way i guess you could say because i would take that 200 acre piece of property and bounce from this tree to that tree to this tree to that tree and i would have some success that way but it wasn't um big enough and now i guess when i when i backpedal to what i was doing then compared to what i'm doing now um now it's huge i mean i'm going a mile here, two miles there, uh, an hour drive there. So just really spreading it apart. Um, and that, that might be a great tip for some listeners. I mean, I get a lot of people that message me and they ask for advice on their 40 acre piece of property and they explain where their uncle hunts and their brother hunts. And, and you can't, you can't have that many people on a 40 acre piece of property and expect consistent success, you know, especially if they're hunting it day after day after day. Um, and, and I guess define success, right? If you're out there to shoot a small buck or a doe or, or maybe that two year old that comes through or, in every state, different. It's very situational. Um, you, you can't have that success, but I guess if you're hunting mature bucks, and you you really have to get around. You really have to move around, be mobile, and have a lot of different areas. And one of the things that I wanted to to talk to you about is um, kind of like your mindset, right? So, yep, it's really easy to go into to somewhere and get down on yourself if a you don't see what you are looking for you can say well this is the only spot that i had and it, it's not working out or there's another guy here or you know um things like that when you first started out what was your mindset and how has that changed over the years the the ability to adapt to the hunting situations sure so i i guess i would say in the beginning starting out um, I guess I've always been a very stubborn person in the way that if something doesn't work out, I kind of go back to the drawing board. Um, when I was younger, there, there were more times where I would get in a situation, it was difficult, whether I'd be tearing through a swamp and it didn't work out. And we've, a lot of people have had those nights where you go into a swamp or you go into the hills and you trip and fall and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. You just give up for that night. Um, I, I've had a lot of those nights, I guess, where 
you go back home, you're like, this is stupid. Why do I even hunt? Right. This is just crazy. And then you wait a day, you wake up the next morning. You're like, Oh, I know I hunt. I have to get back out there and, and keep plugging away at this. So just that mindset, how bad do you want it kind of thing? Um, how has it changed now from in the past? Um, gosh, it's really, I guess I would say it's really stayed the same. Um, I, I leverage a lot of other people and the success that they're having to kind of motivate me. So when I get kind of frustrated with what I'm doing, um, you look at guys like Andy May, you know who he is from Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. I would imagine. Yep. You look at like what he's doing and you look at it, you got to think to yourself, if he's doing it, if there's, if there's somebody doing what I want to be doing, there's a way that I can, I need to be able to figure it out. Right. If, if what you're trying to, achieve, if there's nobody doing what you're trying to achieve, well, then it's a little bit easier to be hard on yourself because is it, is it really possible? I guess that is a question. Is it really possible? But when somebody's doing what you want to be able to do, you, you can kind of use that as a driving force to try and achieve what they're doing. I, I don't know if that's a good way to word it or explain it, but the way I think about it. Well, yeah, and I think that that's what, you know, kind of we are inspired by guys like yourself, guys like Andy May, guys like the hunting public, um, you know, obviously Dan, you know, seeing these guys that do it consistently and then on public mm-hmm. land and, and just go out there and in the same manner that anybody can do it. it, it it's not, you know, 4,000 acres in Iowa or, you know, something like that that's managed and, you know, you're naming all of these deer and, and doing all of these things. Right. Um, yeah. But as far as that mindset, one of the things, and I, c- I kind of want to go through, like, some of your hunts here, but, like, this sure. year, you know, you killed the buck. Um, in a manner that I think is like the, the pinnacle, um, at least for me, like when I look at, you know, you say there's guys out there that are doing things and and now you know that it can be done. So to shoot a deer in his bed and video it while he's laying there, um, that that to me is like, you knew a hundred percent of the pieces of the puzzle or, Right. You you had it figured out enough and it all fell into place. And it's probably a combination of both of those. But I want to back yep. up from that just a little bit. As on that same hunt, I feel like, you know, we've all went in and it all depends on the mindset. But when you blow a buck out of there or a target buck or whatever, when you <laughs> when you mess up, right? it's real easy yep. for most people to just throw in the towel and say that that deer's gone. He's not going to be um, around anymore and get really down because, you know, that's what everybody tells you is that, you know, mature bucks, you only get one opportunity. You know, if you screw them up, you know, they're, you, you're not going to have another opportunity on them. Um, so right. take us through that hunt and like, kind of like your thought process and kind of how you came to that conclusion. Sure. So I guess for people that don't know the exact story of what happened, um, you can catch the video on the Hunting Beast YouTube page, but I guess I'll kind of give a little um, story of what happened. So I always take off the first, I always take a week of vacation for the first week of bull hunting here in Wisconsin, which is uh, middle of September usually. And uh, I took my first week of vacation and I just did what I always do. And I, I was bouncing spots where I had seen deer in the summer or had trail temperatures or was reading the sign up there there. And I was bouncing around and, uh, Towards the end of my week off, I got to a point where I was actually hunting a field edge, a soybean field edge. And uh, so the night that I was going in to set up, the night before that I was going in to set up, 
Um, basically, what it was was there was a there was an apple tree, um, a bean in the middle of two fields. There was a bean field on one side, a sorghum field on the other side, and then it, the apple tree, um, the fence line that the apple tree was on, led down to a small sliver of hardwood. And uh, when I got down to that small sliver of hardwood, there was a very faint trail that came out of the sorghum. So I felt it was just it was just very faint. You couldn't see any tracks on it because it was raining that night. Um, but I felt like I need to be able to shoot that trail just in case, but I also wanted to catch anything looping up through the beans to come up to that apple tree. Cause you could tell that was being hit very hard. But, uh, what happened was I, I got set up, um, and then fairly early, so there was a front coming through, but fairly early we had, I had a different buck come out into the field. Um, he was like 150 yards out. It was like 125 inch buck. Um, but he came out into the field, some different does started coming past me. Eventually that buck would have come past me, but the, the other doe smelled me and took the whole field with him. Everything went blowing out of the field. And uh, I gave it a few minutes. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, how I was going to how I was going to handle it. And I decided I was going to get down, get out of the tree, because I figured those deer were blown into the woods a little ways. That way I could get out of there and then adjust appropriately for the next night and be set up over there. Because those the other thing to think about, too, is are those deer going to get my scent? Maybe, maybe not. So I, I wonder um, if they're going to get my scent. Maybe they won't be back the next night doing a similar thing. Um, if they didn't, then I'm in the game. So I started getting down early, and uh, when I, I was in, using the saddle that night, and when I swatted the, the saddle platform around the tree, it clanked. And uh, right below me in the sorghum, I saw this buck, the buck that I ended up shooting was tearing off. So he was actually sneaking in through the sorghum, kind of in a little a little different direction. It was kind of unique. It's kind of, I wish I would have videoed a little bit better to show it. Um, but I saw him go tearing off straight back into, it's basically a drainage dish that he was bedding in. And in the drainage dish, there's some high ground with some trees. And, uh, from past experience, the, the bucks had always bedded in the point of this, of these high trees. It's, it's a very specific spot. And, uh, I'm trying to think which, which of Dan's videos is. He's, he, Dan's got a video where I actually have a video of a buck, um, laying in the bed. We were driving by with our snowmobiles one time. I was laying there and, um, ran back home and grabbed the video camera. But, they're always laying in almost the exact same spot. And I knew that because I didn't um, blow him right out of the bed, he didn't get a smell of me. All he heard was a big clank in the tree that w wasn't natural. So I, I felt very confident that he, he would be coming back because of that. And uh, and I guess that, that's a big a key point is if they don't smell you, um, the, the jig is not up. And once they smell you, yeah, it's, it's a little trickier. They relocate. Um and even another example I'll give of that kind of thing is when I was hunting down by Dan last winter, um, in the marsh by him, I had, there was a buck. It was almost a booner, very old deer. Um, and this thing kept watching me in the tree. It was circling around me, feeding in the cattails. And it kept watching me in the tree. And uh, it was never bothered by me. I was kind of moving around, never bothered by me. And then suddenly he circled just to the point where he could smell me, and he took off. And that was a huge eye-opening lesson to me that, these, these, they're not that smart. I mean, they're animals. They're, they're using their nose. Um, if they smell danger, that confirms it for them. They're going to get out of there. But it, that's another thing, I guess, too, that I would point out is the more experiences you can have in the woods, the, the more you have to fall back on to lean on to um, confirm and um, figure out what's going to happen in the future. So basically with this hunt, um, the next morning I got circled around. The wind was good where I could get off on a certain point, and that, that way when the deer came back in, he wouldn't cut my track. Um, I actually came from the road up through some corn, and a lot of people talk about jay hooking, and the, 
I didn't feel as though the deer would jayhook through the corn sideways. If you could picture a buck dragging himself through the corn sideways, it just didn't make sense to me that a deer would do that. So I got came right up through the corn roll, got right on the edge, and uh, the buck, it, in the early season, you see a lot with the bucks. They'll come in an hour before light, and he was actually in below me an hour before light, and I could kind of see him below me in the moonlight. And uh, he came in. I At that point, I pretty much decided I was going to kill him, and then he was a little closer to me than I would have liked him. Um, the way I was set up, the main bed is more so 30 yards to my right, um, and then I actually heard a different deer go into the main bed. So when I heard the other deer go into the main bed, I knew that this one below me was probably the, the satellite buck. The one in the bed was probably bigger, but I didn't know of anything that was substantially bigger. So I decided I was going to shoot the one below me. Um, when it got light out, I looked over at the main bed. I couldn't see anything in it, um, because it was bedded down and I didn't look hard enough probably. But, uh, I shot this one, the, the, the buck that I ended up killing. I shot him. And then when I turned to the camera and started talking, the one to my right in the bed jumped up and he was substantially bigger. Actually, it was a buck I'd never seen before, but uh, definitely a mature animal. But it was a pretty cool hunt. It, was, uh, it just worked out pretty slick and it made it pretty cool for video for people to see how that stuff can work. Well, yeah. And like I said, I, for me, I think that that's like the ultimate, right? Is like you said, I know where that deer is going to go. I went there and I killed him. Now, on that note, like, let's say that you did notice that that other buck was in there and he was substantially bigger, and now you've got this yep. one. I mean, if you look at it from the video and from the GoPro angle, it looks like that deer's, you know, damn near at the base of your tree. Um, yep. What do you do? How how would you have adjusted at that point? Well, for me, in that situation, the one thing that I kept looking at, um, I kept watching the buck below me, and he kept licking his nose. And when they're licking their nose, they're, they're freshening it up to try and pull in smells. And it doesn't mean he was catching whiffs of me at all. Um, he may have been. That was maybe what he was doing. But I was getting a little bit nervous that he might put her out of there. But uh, had I known that that other buck was over there, I would have had no problem with this one getting away on me. Um, and even if this one would have uh, smelled me and jumped up, it would have gotten the other buck to jump up and try and figure out what was going on. Um, I guess that's a risk I would have definitely taken considering the size of the other buck this is how to handle that and so have you shot i mean i haven't seen all the videos that you've done uh but have you shot deer mm -hmm. in their beds like that no you know, i've not shot them in their not in their bed like that i've had many situations where uh they'll be i can hear them come in in uh gray or i can see them coming in gray light or i can hear them coming in the dark and i see it quite often that they'll bed down in the dark. And if I would have waited long enough, I can almost guarantee that this buck eventually would have stood up and either shifted or moved around or fed a little bit. I don't know if it would have taken an hour or two hours, but I see it a lot. You can hear them bed down and then eventually they stand back up and that's when you can get your shot. That was, that was what I intended to do with the main bed because that buck would have eventually stood up and shifted around. Even this specific bed, I've run trail cameras over it and I've even in the trail cam, videos and photos you see it they'll bed down and then they'll stand up throughout the day and move over and they're off the camera for a while and they're on the camera for a while and it's broad daylight and they're in their bedding area and they, they just move around and they offer you shots but the big thing with that is you really have to be careful with your wind that your wind's not gonna not gonna hit them at any point or swirl and that's the neat part about this particular setup that i had was it was just it was a cluster of trees in a um fence line over crop field so i got really high so that my wind wouldn't because if you got kind of got down in that drainage ditch, you could picture the wind swirling. 
Um, so my thing with that was to just get really high in the tree and keep that scent over. I mean, I guess it worked out. It, my main takeaway from that, though, and when kind of what I wanted to, you know, portray to the listener was like, A, the, the motivation, you know, that it can be done. And I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. videoed and, and, you know, to do that and self-film it is, you know, a, a feat in itself on any deer because the more I do it, the more I realize how hard it is to do it well. Um, but to be able to have, you know, quote unquote, screwed up the night before and then kill one of those bucks the next day, you know, exactly the plan. It's like most people will get down on themselves. Like if you boot a buck out of an area, if you, you know, make that quote unquote mistake, it's really easy Mm -hmm. to, like you said, you know, go home and take a couple days off and say, why do I even do this? Um, but you said, Nope, tomorrow I'm just going to go over there and kill him. And I think that, you know, the guys that are successful and I, you know, we talked about it a lot when we were getting ready for our elk hunts and things like that, but you know, the killer mentality to say, I'm going there to kill this deer, this elk, this animal tomorrow, this day, every hunt is to kill, not necessarily to hope or to, um, you know, you've, you've put everything in place to, to get it done. Um, and I, I think that that's where a lot of guys, um, don't necessarily fail, but they don't go into it with that sort of like thought process, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's hard to have a good attitude. Um, especially like I felt like I was slightly defeated. I mean, I pounded hard the whole entire week. Um, I hunted almost every morning. I had a lot of spots I was trying out. So it's hard not to get down, down on yourself. And you, you saying what you're saying reminds me of, uh, last season I ended up last year, I ended up eating my Wisconsin tag because I was holding out for a specific buck. But during the last week, um, I was started hunting some new areas, and I actually I jumped up a buck, and it, I was just so personally, I was just so kind of frustrated and down on myself. If you dig on the hunting beast, I actually made a post because I wanted confirmation. I wanted affirmation that that people had had experiences where they jumped up bucks and they came back to bed. So I mean, for me to say I don't get frustrated, don't get down on myself, I do. But then I looked, I I personally looked last year for the reason to get back out in the morning. I made a post on the hunting beast and I said, how many people have had this happen? Tell me about the story. Cause I just, I was, I knew what I needed to do, but I wanted that, um, that boost in confidence, that little bit of inspiration. And, and sometimes you're not going to get the, you know, some people don't have that internal motor that just makes them want to go, go, go. And if you don't have that, try and find it in other people, find different ways to get, get going. You know, it's, I, I don't know how to, say it better but sometimes you have to find that motivation other places you can't get it from yourself well and that like i say that's one of the things why i wanted to do this podcast because you know last year you know you went out to minnesota and a property that you've never set foot on and were able to kill Mm -hmm. a a really nice buck out there then um i couldn't get i couldn't get you on the podcast so I started talking to you. I heard you on an, another podcast and, um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, so I got back in touch with you. You killed that deer yeah. this year in Wisconsin with a, a, you know, overcoming some adversity there. And then this year's public land challenge, you come to our home state of Michigan. And then I feel like you guys encountered nothing but adversity 
and you were able to kill another buck, um, you know, with extenuating circumstances, um, being what it was. So, uh, with the, those public land challenges, um, how did they, they differ from state to state being Minnesota and Michigan? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess with Minnesota, it was fairly strategic because we, it was, we were acorn focused, right? So with Minnesota, it was the first, um, or I'm sorry, the middle of September, the second last week of September. So what we were looking for was, and you probably heard this from Dan a thousand times, but we were looking for the secluded oaks. Um, we're looking for those spots. Like if you look at like hill country, for example, the oaks are everywhere. So those deer don't have to move. They can stand up in their beds, eat right there. Um, but we were looking for where the bucks had that they, they couldn't bed in the oaks, but they were bedding next to the oaks and you could catch them moving and you knew, you knew that they were going to be there. So once we found what we were looking for, it was pretty simple. We just started island hopping. Um, and in that case, it was islands. I guess not every terrain is going to be islands. You might have like in Michigan, there are oak flats that people were hunting. Um, but that, that was pretty simple. It was just a matter of bouncing around until you, until you got to that point. Now, Michigan was a little bit different because we tried both, um, swamp land. It was, it was a type of swamp land. And we tried, um, how do I describe it? It, it was kind of like hill country. Um, it, it wasn't like a super aggressive type hill country, but we had deer in both spots. So we actually kind of bounced between spots. Um, it was almost like every other day. We went from one spot to the other um, and just stayed in the action. Uh, Michigan was actually a big surprise to me and to us. Uh, if, if you watched the video, um, I believe it was day two, was when Jake and I hunted that soybean field. And we had all those deer come up to that soybean field. That was quite impressive. We had, I think there were like 12 does that night, if I remember right, and those two rocks. Oh, no, that was the third night. There were like 12 does. Um, but it was just... With, with the Michigan one, we really had to just keep moving around until we put ourselves in the right place. We had to um, kind of adapt where the pressure was. We did see it, it was kind of interesting. For, once the day two video was released, the parking lot filled up. And I think it, some of the guys acknowledged they had seen a video of the recognized the spot, and other guys were just headed, headed out to hunt for the weekend. Um, but we, we had to just keep kind of staying one step ahead of everybody. Even on the night that we ended up killing, we had that guy push deeper than we had ever been. So we had to quickly jump down and push deeper than him. So it was, the, the Michigan one was a lot of moving around, a lot of bouncing around, um, not as strategic. It was kind of, everything was very situational. You had to kind of look at what was going on and uh, take your past experiences and, and use them to predict what was going to happen, where you needed to be kind of thing. So I want to kind of take apart both of those um, a little bit because yeah. from the, the Minnesota one, you know, I personally, I can see in my own uh, hunting experience uh, this year that it, it, it kind of like boggles my mind that you guys were able to do that just in the sense where you look at a map and you see this these islands, but to go all the way out there and find that there was oaks. You know, Dan always talks about the hunting beasts, you know, oak islands, get out there and find these oaks and like yeah. you said, it's just easier said than done. Well, and you know, for myself and my buddy this year, and I kind of shown you where we were going, messaging back and forth. But you know, we went down in our our river bottom system that we've got here, and there's, you know, you you, you take the canoe in and you go up, and there's these 
islands and there's this high ground and it looks like, you know, there's hardwoods in there. And we're like, there's got to be oaks in there. You know, we walked for a mile in there, all the way out there, and there wasn't one oak tree. There's nothing. And it's like, okay, so we were banking on that. So now what? And, you know, so to, to look at a map and say, you know, you look, is there something specific that you're looking at when you're looking at Google Earth or, um, you know, on yeah, it that says it, that here's here's going to be oaks versus like where we were at was everything is a maple tree. Yep, uh, and I'll be honest, I'm a little bit new to the Oak Island um, hunting game as well. For me, it's always been in the early season. It's always you you, you find like maybe a point that has that jets out into a swamp or a cedar swamp, tamarack swamp, whatever it is. You find a point with some acorns on it, and you use that. Um, you never have anything. It's pretty rare to find it perfect like we had it. Um, in Minnesota or like down by Dan, he hunts a lot of acorn islands. He's got some perfect islands. Um, but I guess if you're looking on a map, the thing that I've learned, I guess, to look for is because you can't tell what's what, you're looking for island that's surrounded by just, just simple cattails. If you start seeing like other brushy patches of stuff on the cattails, you don't know if that's another island or an oak tree and it's hard to figure out what the size of the other stuff is. So, I mean, you could you could zoom way out on a map figure out where all the swamps are, and then you want to just find where it's just simply cattails, or, or in Minnesota, it was like canary grass, it was some kind of grasses, where it's just, it's a complete transition change. Because um, on a map, it can be, even like when we were in Michigan, it was kind of deceiving as to what it was. We thought we were looking at a cattail swamp with islands when it was really that those bragmite. So, it, it, does, this, does that make sense? I guess you're looking for where, you're looking for an island in the middle of an ocean of cattails. Yeah. To, to simplify it. Yeah. But I mean, you know, so I'm in Michigan. So everything that we were looking at was canary grass and just not cattails. <laughs> so, yeah. but, but yeah. from a map, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to discern from that, you know, 30,000 foot view or whatever. Yeah. Um, until you actually get out there. And that's almost, that, that's a better thing to do. Um, like for myself included, because I, I tried to hunt the, the acorn islands myself a little bit more this early season and, uh, it just, it didn't do well for me. And that's something this coming spring that I'll be, um, putting some miles on some new areas and putting some pins on the maps to save them for next year and make some notes next to them where the acorn trees and where the acorn trees are and, and what acorn trees are going to be the first ones that they hit. Cause that's another important thing too, um, is when you do have an acorn island, those deer are going to hit the first available acorns and then they're going to stop. They're not going to move more than likely before dark. They're not going to move any further. They're just going to feed at those trees. So you have to be at the closest dropping tree to where they're coming from, where you're going to, you're going to be skunked. And a lot of times too, you can kind of, if you look, you can kind of tell what tree or trees they're feeding under just by how turned up it is. You can kind of tell by reading the sign. Right. And so in Minnesota, um, we talked about it a little bit before the uh, podcast, but w- the deer that we were seeing, what was like the age class or, or the differences in the deer that you saw there versus Michigan? And then what's the tag situation like in Minnesota? Yep. So Minnesota was a uh, tag situation pretty much just like Wisconsin. You you get your one, um, uh, your archery tag, and then uh, I believe you get your gun tag too. I don't know because we weren't there for that. Now they... Uh, Mich, uh, Minnesota has their um, their gun seasons like right in the middle of the rut. So, I, from my understanding, they take a heck of a beating on their deer that way. Um, 
I know where we were too. The thing that helped in our situation in Minnesota was that we were so far back that those deer had not experienced or dealt with any humans. Um, so that deer we caught by complete surprise, basically. Um, in terms of age structure, we didn't see a ton of deer to get a good taste of that. Um, I would say they're comparable to Wisconsin deer, um, body size, age structure. We saw like a two and a half on like our second night hunt. Um, I, I did with, I think Ted was filming me. Dan had like a one and a half year old that was, I don't know what you'd call him, just a, just a little basket rack, kind of comparable to what we have here in Wisconsin. I would say it was very comparable. But then when we went to Michigan, it was interesting because, um, you'd look at a deer and there was a deer that John Eberhart was talking about. And he's like, Oh, that's a two and a half. And in Wisconsin, it would have absolutely been a one and a half year old, just looking at the size of the body. And, uh, and I believe John from what he was pointing out, some of the different details, but you guys just, for where we were in kind of the, the middle of the state, the, the body size of the deer were smaller. Um, the racks of the deer were smaller. Um, even with the one I shot, some people said, Oh, that's a three year old. Some people said that's a two year old. I, I couldn't tell you what it was. If that deer was, in Wisconsin, that would be a one and a half, maybe a two and a half. So you, you guys definitely have a different in that regards for sure. Now, um, there was a different buck out there that was leaving a lot of the bigger sign. Um, Tim, our marketing guy on the hunting piece, had actually seen the other bigger buck. And then uh, after we left, uh, we had two different people, I believe, send us trail cam pictures of that other buck. And it was like a 120-inch buck. Um Gosh, I, I couldn't tell you how old it was. It, it looked mature, but then again, it had a smaller body. So it was, it, it's very weird. Uh, you guys probably have a better eye for it coming from that state, I would imagine. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard. Everybody here yeah. is just so down on the state. Um, yep. you know, and it, it really is coming back, you know, but the way that, you know, the reason I was asking about the tags is, I mean, obviously you saw the way that the Michigan worked is you buy the combo tags, so you yep. can kill two bucks there's no you know there's antler point restrictions on the second one depending on what area what zone what what everything you're in um so mm-hmm. everywhere we're hunting right now you can kill whatever you want with whatever you want kind of um sure and, and we, we saw what that kind of did to you guys too where i ended up killing my buck there was a group of guys that would go in there and i don't know if they they would use their second tag as a doe tag or not or what they would do but I believe they took out three one and a half year old bucks in the first few days, and and I can kind of understand that mindset. You you shoot your buck, and then you've got your buck, and the pressure's off, and now you can go chase something bigger. So I can see how that kind of might hurt you guys. Not that they're, I have anything against it. I mean, if, if they want to shoot a one and a half year old buck and it gets them excited and fired up, they should. But I can see when you go in and you shoot all those, I can see what that does to you in terms of and start getting those two and three and four year olds, you know. Oh yeah, I mean, so for us, we're a big proponent of the one buck tag, but because of the way that Michigan is and the revenue that they get, um, you know, they're okay. not going to do that. Um, okay. Personally, I think, and uh, you know, everything being equal, I killed a one and a half year old buck this year. First one from the saddle, first one from the um, first one that I killed on video, and. Yep. I'm ecstatic. I, w- I would, if I only had one buck oh, yeah. tag, I'd be perfectly content. Um, yep. Because I, I, I met my goals that I set for this year because those are the two things. Uh, well, there's three things because I wanted to make pastrami out of the, the deer. Then and so sure. that was the main, that was my main motivation. But, you know, I would be perfectly content if that was my, my deer for the year. That being said, it may have changed the way that I approached my hunt. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's the one thing that we're getting away from. So even if we were allowed two bucks, but you had to register the first one and the second one had to be four on one side or some sort of antler point restriction where that's the way that it's supposed to be, but you had both those tags in your pocket and you killed one with four on one side. So you could have tagged that buck with your restricted tag and then went out the last day of the season and killed a year and a half old. Right. And yeah, so it can happen either way. Right. Right. Yep. And you know, that is what it is, but um, you know, so when you guys came to, Michigan, um, and I t- kind of talked to you a little bit before you came to Michigan, and you know we talked to Dan, and y- you guys had conflicting um, stories. You know, there's big deer everywhere, and people are going to kill you. Right. Um, what were your expectations coming into the state uh, for this public land challenge, um, and your strategy before you got to Michigan, and then how did it change as you got got into the the hunting? Actually, yeah. So. My answer would be exactly the same as Dan's. As uh, before we went, we had no idea what we'd be getting into. And then uh, just driving, as I was driving there that first day and just looking at the, the countryside along the highway and seeing how much, how much uh, I don't know, good quality deer habitat you guys have, um, that, that I started to become optimistic pretty quick. And then the first day, Dan and I started driving around and we're seeing deer all along the highways. And I'm like, holy crap, this is way better than we had, had expected. Um, the thing that I think is interesting for you guys, you have tons of does. Um, I, I had one, I was talking to one Michigan guy and he said that a lot of people look at the, um, the does in Michigan almost as sacred, like that's your doe factory. And that was kind of interesting to me. Would you, have you ever heard that before? Would you agree with that? They're, that's kind of your, the, the does are kind of your factory to have more bucks so nobody shoots them. Is that a, uh, you know, uh, to a degree, I mean, so, uh, John who couldn't be here tonight, but you know, he grew up, his whole family, they never shot does ever. Okay. They, his dad was mad when he shot his first doe at 18 years old or something like that. Really? And, okay. but they had no problem killing two year and a half old bucks. I mean, that Michigan, I think has a culture of, of I don't think maybe it's as strong as Wisconsin, um, maybe a, right on par, especially as you get into Northern Michigan and the UP as far as rifle yep. camp and that sort of thing. Um, our rifle hunting tradition and the deer camps are, you know, that tradition is strong, but okay. there's a lot of, I just got, I, I got to shoot my buck guy. And okay. yep. the way that Michigan does their doe permits also is Michigan almost treats it that way. You know, we don't have any yep. sort of mandatory registration. So, it's all kind of estimate wise as far as what was actually harvested versus, you know, what they think was harvested. And sure. you know, yep, yep. It makes it very confusing. I, I was told they take some, some uh, surveys here and there too. They, they, I don't, I don't remember how they explained it, but yeah, it was very interesting how they do that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, a lot of people are looked down upon, you know, by shooting does and they don't do that. And, you know, you can't shoot the does okay. because those are what bring the bucks around, and uh, it, it's weird. Okay. You know, my family—I grew up. Yeah. We we were in uh, eight miles from Wisconsin, Menominee County, and um, yep. we were in like for many years was the highest deer population in Michigan as far as does, and they gave out the most doe permits, and we never killed okay. bucks to speak of. Um, sure. but we killed a lot of does. So uh, me coming from the, like the opposite side of that spectrum, but. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I guess the, the, the thing I would say about Michigan, if I had to compare Michigan to where I live, um, I would say you guys, well, the area we were in, I would say that um, the big bucks are there, just like back home, numbers-wise, in terms of the big bucks, the trophy buck, the one that everybody wants. I would say it's probably similar to where I am, but you guys just have a lot more does. So for me, it's not uncommon to sit and just not see any deer, period, um, out there. It was, if you didn't see a few does run by, um, it was kind of a surprise, I guess. I, I would tell the mission guys not to get down on themselves. I mean, if you're if you're a trophy hunter, they're definitely there. Um, and another thing too, look look what Michigan has done to somebody like Andy May or John Eberhardt. You become a product of your environment, right? So, if you're born in um, Ohio or Iowa, not to bash those guys, but you don't have difficult hunting. You don't have to learn. You don't you don't have to learn different tactics outside the box things to get it done you can just get out there during the rut and catch a buck running by crazy and get excited about it, which is cool too but i, I guess I, for the michigan guys that want to get down on themselves i would say flip it and and use it as a way to um become a better hunter because if you can kill in michigan or in my part of wisconsin i believe um if you can get it done you're you're a product of your environment you come out of there and you go to another state and you just kick butt you know, you're going to, you're going to be a foot up on a lot of guys. And you, you look at a lot of these guys like Greg Miller, um, gosh, I can't remember half of them, but they came for, a lot of them came from very difficult to hunt states. Uh, Scott Buckley, he came from Michigan. So he had to learn how to get it done in a very difficult state. And now he goes to Iowa and just smashes giants. So coming from a difficult state or, or hunting in a difficult state, that's a good thing. That makes you a, a better hunter than everybody else. In my opinion, if you can get it done, you know, you're, if that's your goal, I guess. Right. I like to look at it that way. And so, um, kind of back to, so we established that, uh, you know, when you guys came here, you know, you had one sort of expectation and then you, you know, were kind of surprised as the amount of deer and everything, but yep. you know, another, you know, you guys were hit with a ton of adversity. I mean, it was monsoon rains and uh, right. the spots that you were hunting was, um, you know, just completely flooded. What made you continue to hunt those flooded areas? For, and, and, you know, from my understanding, there were quite a ways from camp. Um, why did you continue to go back to those areas versus finding something um, maybe a little bit more easy to hunt or more comfortable sure. to hunt, I guess? Yep. So the flooding actually worked out to our advantage. So the flooding, all the stuff that flooded was where most of the deer would normally be bedding down in the river bottoms where it's kind of mucky and nasty and brushy and thick. And uh, with the flooding, everything, all those little dry bogs that the deer would be sitting on were completely eliminated, so it pushed them up into the hills. It actually made it better for us. It, and I think that's part of why we saw so many deer because it, they couldn't sit down in the river bottoms and feed. They were pushed up into the hills where things are a little bit crazy. Um, so for us to drive anywhere else and go try and find something um, that's a little bit better almost would have been crazy. It was it pushed the deer into our lap, so to speak. And, you know, like I said, with the adversity, I mean, you know, you guys were, you know, somewhat forced to hunt, right? So you were given this time yep. frame yep. and, you know, taking off of work, time from family, you know, it, to make things even more pressure of, you know, being filmed the entire time and documenting the whole story in a difficult state. Um, sure. you know, you, you guys kind of were forced to endure, 
right? But I think one of the things that kind of blew my mind was on that last hunt, you know, where you did end up killing, uh, you know, you, you had every hunter's like nightmare, you know, so to speak, as you, right. you were set up in the perfect amount of time, you were there kind of where you wanted to be, give or take, and you got guys walk right underneath you. And a lot of guys right. would be pissed and throw in the towel and just say, well, I can't do this. Um, a couple things. One, if that happened to you at home, would you have reacted the same because you weren't on the same timetable? Um, did that come into oh, no. factor or, or, and then, and then what made you decide to do, you know, kind of what you did that ended up everything working out? Yeah. I, back home, I would have absolutely done the same thing. Um, my, I only get to, the way my work works, I only get to hunt two, maybe three nights a week. And then I have a fair amount of vacation, but, um, with only two or three nights a week, if I'm hunting an evening and someone comes rolling in on me, I'm going to absolutely get down and adjust because that, that night that I have to be able to hunt is kind of precious to me. Um, I can hunt almost any morning, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I would have absolutely done the same thing. And then uh, what, what was your follow-up question to that? What, what led us to do that? Um, so once you, um, once you got down and made that decision, yeah. um, how did you end up in the spot that you did and take us through kind of like the, the rest of that hunt? Sure. Yep. So, um, when those guys came down in on us, he, he told us, the guy told us that he was going to go about 250 yards back. So we, we looped entirely around them to not mess with them. And then when we got back deeper, um, what, what we started noticing was that, um, it, it started getting thicker, right? So everything was very open. You could kind of, it was like a, just an open hardwood. A lot of people can picture that. A lot of people hunt that. And you could just see the entire open hardwoods. And you, you just don't see a lot of deer bedding in that. I mean, you get your does and your smaller bucks that'll bed in little pockets in there. Um, but if you're after a decent bucket, they're just not bedding out in that open hardwoods too often. It, obviously, in northern Michigan, it's a whole different story. I don't really know anything about that. But um, in these pressure-type areas. Now, as the, the way it was shaped, it was a, like a great big ridge that was flat on the top that went back. I would say that the entire ridge probably went back like 1,200 yards. Um, we went back 900 yards from the field. And it kind of goes to a point, and you could see on the map the, the way it went to a point and then tapered down. And it, it looked a little bit thicker on the map, but as we got closer to that point, it started getting really thick. And you could see um, when we got into our kill spot, you could see on the ground where all the deer were staging. And when you get into a deer, a buck staging area or a doe staging area or whatever where they're feeding, you can tell there's just tracks everywhere, and they're, they're kind of random. And if you watch that video of the buck ended up killing, and you watch how he walks around underneath that oak tree just feeding. He did, he did a lot of moving around. And you just picture the amount of tracks that that deer just left under that one tree. That's what we were seeing um, in the spot that we ended up setting up. So we knew we were right tight in there. Um, I, I did. I have a bad habit of pushing too far sometimes. So I did want to push just a fuzz further, maybe 20 or 30 yards more. But Jake's like, I think we should set up right here. We did blow just past where we... Um, set up we did blow a deer off there's like a little knob it's in the video you can see the bed is wore around and where that bed is too that deer is sitting right on whatever that deer was that we jumped it was sitting right on the um right on the edge of the thick and the open hardwoods and it can see everything coming through the open hardwoods and i don't know if that was i don't think that was the buck i ended up shooting what i think happened there was i think it was a smaller buck if you watch in the video um the buck i shot there was like a one and a half year old with it um, but what I think happened is we jumped up that smaller one and a half year old buck 
and he ran back into the main bedding area and it got the deer on the feet. And I've, I've seen that quite a bit at home, like in the swamps where, um, you jump up one deer, it gets all the deer up and pretty soon you have the deer up and moving early. And, uh, they, they'll run back there. They'll be spooked or they won't know what you are and they aren't terribly spooked and it doesn't alert the other deer too bad. Um, cause that, cause I think what happened was that, that one and a half year old was slightly spooked and he kind of stayed back there. And then that, the one I ended up shooting got up on his feet, started feeding. And that's why the smaller one came in second. And that's kind of a guess. Um, but that's what ended up happening ultimately. And so, um, what was different about that hunt than, you know, all of the much bigger deer that you've killed, you know, all over the country? Um, cause that kind of had you shook a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it did. So I, I there's, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons that I got just that I wanted to kill him so bad, right? And I had him cutting in and out of holes, and I didn't want to take a shot over 30 yards, and he was at like 35 and then 40, and then I wasn't sure if he was going to go back in the cover or come past me, so that really started rattling me. Um, one one thing that I was kind of joking about with Dan is when, if you think about it, um, let's say you shoot a buck on video and that video gets 100,000 views, when you're in that tree, and maybe I shouldn't think about it this way, it sounds really stupid, but when you're in that tree, picture picture an audience of 100,000 people. You know, so if, if I take a shot and I shoot the thing in the ass or something, that you got an audience of 100,000 people watching that, right? So I think that put a little bit of pressure on me, whereas at home, if I don't have to show the video, right? Whereas this is going to be on video no matter what. Um, and then, uh, what was the other part? There are kind of three parts to it that kind of rattled me. Just, just how... And I guess just the whole week, you, you pound the whole week, the whole week, and I turn over and I see that deer and I'm like, crap, I'm like, this is my last shot, we're leaving tomorrow, if I don't kill this thing, this is it, you know, this is for all the money, so, it, it, yeah, I think that a lot of that played into it, if it were at home, I would have been just kind of calm and calculated like usual and shot him and <laughs> it would have been simple, and communicating with Jake made it difficult too, because uh, I didn't know he couldn't hear me and he didn't know I couldn't hear him and that was kind of a mess and he wanted to get it on video and so obviously, I guess I did too, but that made it harder. Just a whole lot of crazy stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty it, cool though. Oh, and and that's the thing for the viewer to you know to to see that and to see the excitement, you know, because I think that that is you know what most people feel because they you know maybe haven't killed as many deer or whatever, and you know, especially for like our oh, yeah. listener. Um, you know, that's why we do it. We get super excited. And, you know, when, when guys like the Drewries or whatever, they just shoot one and they say, oh, that was Moses or Thor or whatever. And <laughs> I'm really happy that I got yep. to kill him. And, you know, yep. it, it, they don't get excited. Right. And, and, right. and that's awesome. But one of the things, and uh, you can answer this however you want to, um, but amongst our podcast, um, there's been some speculation that uh, the whole Carhartt killer thing uh, that you killed that deer in Michigan in um, jeans and uh, you know whatever uh, based on you know you kept mentioning John Eberhart and he's very well known for his scent control scent oh, lock sure. everything and it's public land Michigan you've got to be you know you can't kill one in Michigan if you're not, you know, X, uh, yep. you know, the deer you killed in, in, in Wisconsin, you were wearing camouflage and, uh, yep. you know, everything like that. Um, was that, 
how how much of that came into play? None of it was really because of the Sandlock side of things. Um, mainly, it's just because I'm cheaper than hell. <laughs> uh, those are I, I've got some rentals out here back home, and those are my um, pants that I wear when I'm working on those or um, when I'm hunting. It, it really doesn't make a difference. And like we had all that rain, so my I have one pair of ca- uh, two pairs of camouflage pants, one for warm weather, one for cold weather. Um, those were all soaked and nasty from the rain, and that's what I had left, so that's what I wore. But I, as long as like the I guess I look at the color of the pants a little bit. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of black pants. I've, one time I was hunting in a swamp, and Tyler Wood, or Big Hunt they call him, he was on the other side of the swamp, and I had some really dark camouflage, and he took a picture of me up in the tree, and I looked like a black grizzly bear. So <laughs> ever since then, I, I just want something that's a little bit lighter. Like that, I had a uh, uh, light Carhartt color, and then there was a brown pair that I was wearing as well. Um, and then I had a gray sweatshirt. Grays seemed to blend in pretty well in the woods. Um, but I didn't care. The one, the one thing I will say, I've gotten a lot of crap for, um, it's like the buck in Minnesota, I wasn't wearing a hat. I didn't have face paint. Um, the buck in the bed, I wasn't wearing a hat. I didn't have face paint. And uh, the THP guys were giving me some crap for that, and I thought that was funny. So when I ended up not shooting this with a with no hat and no face paint and no face mask, it was kind of funny. Um, now, I, I will say, I, if I were going in on, on a big, old, mature buck, I would probably... I, I guess I can't even say that because that was, that was the plan when I went. Um, I, I had full intentions of killing that buck back home here. But it, it, is face paint necessary? It's not a bad idea, I guess, because you picture that bleach, your bleach white face in the tree just really sticks out. Um, but I don't know. I guess, the whole no hat, no face mask thing I thought was kind of funny, the, the way it worked out. And I got a lot of crap for it. So, Well, I think it's that hilarious kind of cool. because you know, there's so many people that want to push product. They want to do Ozonics. They want to do Scentlock. They want right. to do, you know, this camouflage. They want to do this face paint. They want to do, you know, ghillie suits. They want to do everything, you know, that kind of like makes money or, you know, that's right. the, and, and I think for so long, you know, you hear that stuff pounded down your throat and you're like, well, I have to do this. I have to do that. You, and right. to see somebody go, you know, you know, twice now into different states, land they've never been on, and and kill deer in this situation. And I mean, essentially, you were in your work clothes and yep. and and got it done. Uh, it, it's it's both uh, refreshing, but mm-hmm. hilarious. Like I say, given the I mean, and so you know where where we live here. Um, in Muskegon, Michigan, is where Scentlock is headquartered. My mom went to school with uh, the okay. uh, owner, uh, the creator of of Scentlock. I had one of the scent, the first Scentlock suits that I bought out of his basement. So, I mean, okay. we're very familiar in this area with uh, you know the company and everything. It's done a lot for the the hunting uh, industry and and things here in the town. Um, but it's just it's hilarious to see the both sides of 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 that coin and to go in and do it so that's why yep. you're saying like you know you're in camp with john eberhart who has a you know the video with the tethered guys of his scent control regimen and yep. uh, it's just it was awesome to see so yeah i could never do it he does I, I i'm a big sweater i get a little bit warm and i sweat so i could never ever make that work i mean if you if you look in the video once we got to the back of that ridge i was just full of sweat when we moved for the second time because I left a lot of my clothes on. I was just all sweated up and it would just never work for me. 
And so was there anything that you took away from like that hunt in Michigan um, that you're going to use going forward or, um, you know, yeah, my, my biggest learning experience from Michigan um, is that, and Dan kept pointing it out too. That, that's the other cool part is not many people can say they hunted with Dan and fall. Right. So he's, and I always tell him like, dude, if there's something you think I'm doing that is stupid or ridiculous or I need to adjust a little bit, just tell me like, I want to know, I want the feedback. I don't care how you say it. You're not going to hurt my feelings. And, the big thing I kept doing, like there was a buck, um, it didn't get shown very well in the videos, but there was a buck up in that cattail swamp and I looked at it on a map and I just dove right in and that buck was bedded not that deep in and had, I could have sat right on the dike and shot that thing. Um, and I, I actually backed up and tried to shoot it a different night and it caught my wind. I didn't see him, but I heard him come through the water and he caught my wind and bucked out of there. Um, but just, too often I just dive too deep. That was a huge learning lesson for me. I, I, I overthink stuff a lot. So that was huge. <laughs> and even the buck I killed, I wanted to go 20 yards deeper and take like, no, we need to hold up right here. He was exactly correct. Yeah. I did that uh, just, a, a week or so ago. I just kept going further and further looking for sign, looking for sign. And I found, you know, like how you mentioned that faint trail and I yep. found that, that faint trail, but it didn't seem like it was going anywhere. There was water everywhere. And I went yep. 40 yards further and uh, found a couple oak trees, you know, right on the edge of bedding. And I thought, this is going to be it. And the yep. wind was blowing back to that faint trail. And I got busted, you know, right at, you know, 20 minutes before last light, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, and actually, that's, that's the way you learn. Yeah. And, and that's what it is, you know, it, it, to, to watch you guys, to watch the hunting public, to watch Dan and, you know, Dan does a great job in his videos and, you know, the videos that, that you've got on the hunting beast of breaking down like why and how, um, yeah. the one thing we don't get is the backstory of the, the hundred blown opportunities or whatever, you know, that's the problem I think a little bit with YouTube and, and, and Facebook and social media versus, um, you know, kind of what you were referencing there on the forum is you don't get that, you know, everybody wants to show the highlights. They don't want to show the times that they screwed it up. Right. 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 So, yeah, um, and so one of the things that we got to see on the, um, that public land challenge, and we've seen it a few different times in, in your videos is, um, you've come up with that, that sparrow, that spare arrow, um, yeah. that, that goes on there. So kind of, how did that come about? So I, I've had, um, one of my problems, I have a little bit of target panic and one of my problems is, um, I, I bring my pin when I have a deer in front of me, I'll draw back and I'll bring my pin down onto the deer and I freak out and I shoot and I, I've spined many deer. I have a bunch of videos of me spining all these different deer. I've killed a lot of good deer spining them. And I had always thought that it, and I always had to shoot a second time and I had always thought that it was my bow was too slow. So I bought a different bow that was way faster and I hit, I hit the darn thing high still. And uh, I figured out that it was target panic, which is why I was hitting it high. But in the process of all that, um, I, I needed a second arrow all the time. Um, and one the one that I shot in the, I've got an Instagram video if you watch it. Um, it was a 149-inch buck. He came in. I shot him. It was high in the lungs, but he actually ran closer to me and stood and stared at me. And I reached back. I had the, my arrows hung behind me, and I reached back to grab my air, an extra arrow that was behind me and he busted me doing it. You can hear the arrow clank on the tree in the video. So my quiver kind of clank on the tree and he busted me. And I thought if I had been able to just get the arrow in him quicker, that would have solved it. And 
in the past, what I used to do is I'd take all my quiver brackets, uh, an extra quiver bracket, and I would just drill it into the, into the side of the stand. But then I bought a new zone with salt, too, and I just really didn't feel like drilling a hole into the side of that stand. So I had my buddy machine me a block of, uh, just a block of machined aluminum with two holes in it. And that was kind of big and gaudy, and I couldn't get it at the angle I wanted it. So then he machined me a round one, and uh, it worked pretty slick because you can, the, the, you have to see the way it works. It's almost impossible to describe, to describe it without seeing it, but you can literally have your quivers at whatever angle you want. You can have them on your left and on your right, and you just reach down and grab one um, with very minimal motion. You can look down and see it if the deer's kind of looking at you or whatever. Um, for me, it's, it's all about, I mean, when you have those things happen, um, taking care of those little details. And that, that's one thing, too, when I go back to, like, the face mask thing. It's probably a good idea to wear a face mask because that one time I have a mature buck come in and look up at me and see my bleach white face, I'm going to regret it. So it's just all those little details, and that's one little problem that I felt had never been solved. And, and uh, my I made made one for myself, and my buddies are like, well, that's cool, I want one. So I figured, what the heck, I have the uh, Dan... Uh, helped me out, and he, uh, Dan, Mario, and Robin, they got it up on their site, and um, they worked. They were pretty slick. It worked pretty well. And so you mentioned that you were um, saddle hunting that first day. Um, how does that mm-hmm. work with the saddle, the, the saddle platform, or what are you doing with it um, on that? Yeah, it it doesn't work very well on the saddle. I had it on the. I still have it on the bottom of the platform, but the way your heels hang over on the edge of the platform, you'd hit it all the time. So uh, you just kind of have to do what everybody else does and stuff it up in a branch or leave it on your bow. Or um, a lot of those guys have the accessory hooks. It just doesn't work well from a saddle. Okay. Somebody, yeah. Cause somebody it, could probably make a little bracket that goes on a strap or something that would work well. Okay. A lot of guys just hook it. But okay. Yeah, I, w- I was curious about that. Yeah, we um, yeah we always had the quickie quivers and had those screwed to the side of our stands for forever. But yeah, yeah, you. Yep. end up with a tight spot or a Matthews or one of the trophy Ridge ones. And, uh, it, it's not as easy to come by an extra bracket and then, you know, the cam no, on there and stuff part. like that. Yeah. That's, that's a very tricky part the, the tight spot ones you can find fairly easily, but they are 30 bucks. So it's not cheap, you know, once you, once you get everything all on there, but the, the way I look at it in this, I mean, it's going to sound like a sales pitch. If, if it's the difference between, um, getting that second shot off and getting the buck or not getting the second shot off and not getting the buck. I spend all those hours in a year. Um, I want everything right. I want everything perfect, you know, so I can't make any excuses for myself. I mean, I, I get as anal as at the beginning of every year. I pull apart, apart my entire lone wolf and I'll, you're supposed to use the um, bolstering wax and I'll wax every single washer because if, if I don't wax it and I go out and have a big buck coming in that tree stand pops or squeaks, I'll be pissed off at myself because I know that I should have, sat down one night with a beer and just waxed all my washers. So <laughs> just all those little details, eliminate all those things. So you have no excuses not to get a deer. Right. And so where can somebody, you know, if they're interested in that, where can they check those out at? Yep. So they're on the, um, hunting, hunting beast gear website. You have to go, not the hunting beast website, but the hunting beast gear website. You just Google search it and you can find them on there. We got plenty of them for people. That's awesome. Check them out. And so what's your, your bow set up and your, your arrows and all that? Sure. So I had initially, I was initially shooting the Halon 6, and I'm still working on my target panic thing. I, and Andy Mays been kind of helping me through that a bit. And the one thing he mentioned about the Halon 6 was that it's kind of top-heavy, and, and I would definitely agree with him. There's always just been something a little off about it. So this year, I switched to the Triax, and it shoots really nice. I mean, I like the way it shoots. Um, 
in terms of our lease, God, I can't remember what it is. I think it's like a, I couldn't even tell you. Um, uh, both side, I like my HHAs. You can custom order those HHA um, single pin adjustable sites with a smaller pin. And I like that too because some of the pins that you get, um, just like if you go to your, your archery shop and pick up a true glow site, they're just so big that when you draw back on a deer at 30 yards, it covers the, the entire vitals. And with the, they've got that like a rheostat or whatever they call it on the mm-hmm. HHA site where you can dim it down and get the pin to be nice and small. Um, I like that. I know a lot of guys get way more technical with their archery equipment than I do. Um, and then I just like my HHA QAD rest. That works well. And what are you shooting for broadheads? Uh, the G5 striker. And I guess they just discontinued those and turned them into like a, so something different. They're bigger. I don't, I don't know. I just snagged up two more packs of, of them as they're going, as they're discontinuing them. They've always worked well for me. I used to work at an archery shop. And uh, Matthews, whatever your Matthews would do, a bunch of tests as to what broadheads flew the best out of their bows. And uh, the G5 Striker, was, G5 Striker and the Slick Tricks for fixed blade were two of the best flying broadheads. And uh, I've just stuck with them. They worked really well. Yeah, like it, I think I said it on the last couple podcasts, but I always loved it. You know, we, you know, we're bow hunting podcasts. So we ask everybody their bow hunting setups. But um, what's awesome is like, you know, you talked about like, breaking down taking apart your stand and waxing yep. everything and you're like oh my bow is this i can't remember my release um you know it's it, it, the guys that are i mean i feel like the guys that are consistently killing big deer you know at a good clip are mm-hmm. spending most of their time making sure that their gear is right they're doing all of the scouting they're figuring out the setups and then whatever their bow is, whatever their broadhead, you know, they know that they're going to be within, you know, X amount of yards and that they're going to be proficient. They're not saying, okay, well, I need to shoot 70 yards and I need to be, uh, you know, everything. And it, it's a really uh, interesting, um, you know, kind of like case study on different individuals versus like where their priorities lie, I guess. So, so you're saying like with the big buck killers, you're noticing a slight lack of priorities around the archery equipment they just want to know if they're that they're hitting what they're aiming at is that what you're saying uh yeah you know to a degree but i think it's like that they okay. don't they don't they're not necessarily saying like everything has to be they're not as meticulous with their bow setup as they are their stand their entry and setup um, sure yeah i could understand that to a degree i i do think i personally need to get a little bit more detailed with it um and, and like even with the with my rest, I used to have this old um, Alpine drop away, and as you drew back, the your cable slide would slide across that bar, and the rest would slowly come up. Well, one morning that bar was sticky, and the rest sling the rest kind of like it was like a slingshot, like it flickered up. Mm-hmm. And I shot my arrow into my sight, and the buck ran off. <laughs> so I mean, just to say I haven't gone through and tried a lot of different things, I, I definitely have, you know. But oh, for sure. For sure. You get those things that work and you stick with them. So I think that's pretty much all we've got for this evening. Um, so where can people follow along with everything that you're doing, Joe? And, um, you know, if they've got questions or anything more on this. Yep. So all of my stuff that I, that I put out is on uh, the Hunting Beast page, Dan's Hunting Beast on YouTube. Um, I do a little bit of posting on the forum. I have a hard time keeping up with that. So not as much lately. Um, and then I have my Instagram page, as well as the Hunting Beast Instagram page. You can find some of my stuff on and those are that's about it 
Well, awesome. Like I said, I really appreciate you taking the time for us. And I know that you're, you're busy and you're in, uh, in high demand, uh, here you're headed to Ohio. Oh, so right. good, good luck here. And, uh, you know, thanks again. Yeah. Good luck to yourself in Missouri. Should be yep. exciting. For sure. Thanks, man.